from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, circularity and the 45% climate solution, revving up vehicle-to-grid communications, why ecosystem regeneration is set for an investment boom, and Citibank names its first chief sustainability officer. It's where the money is this week on 350. It's October 11th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as she does each week from across the USA, from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Greetings, Joel. And how are you this fine day? It's uh, it's all going pretty well. You know, it's been touch and go here in California. We have uh, a power struggle, let's say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, uh, as we're recording this, uh, all of the, uh, uh, the shoes haven't yet dropped, but um, somewhere between a half million and 800,000 uh, residents and businesses and communities in California are having uh, power outages, and we don't know for how long. And this is all to uh, prevent the possibility of the wildfires we had exactly two years ago. Planned power outages. These are the grid being taken offline proactively. I think that point needs to be made for anyone outside of California, I think doesn't quite understand what's going on there. I think people are like, what? You're turning off my power like for no reason? You know, that's what they think. No, that's tell, a good point. Tell, tell the but, outsider, tell the, the non-stater what's going on here. Well, we had these wildfires. The wildfires, they were devastating and killed some 20 or so people. I forget how many exactly, but um, were deemed to be have, have been caused by uh, transformers that cause sparks during some times of high, dry winds, which are very common during September, October in California. They're in Southern California, they're called the Santa Ana winds. Um, and... Uh, so all of the state utilities, PG&E and Southern California Edison and SDG&E down in San Diego, SMUD, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, and on and on, now have plans in place to, as you say, proactively shut down power in key communities when certain weather, dry, hot, windy weather conditions uh, increase the risk of sparking new fires. So that's what's going on. And yes, Heather, they're planned, but the information flow is horrible. And you know, yeah, you know, PG&E has yeah, uh, been a P- right? <laughs> PG&E has been a good friend of GreenBiz. They've been a sponsor. They've spoken at our events. They're members of our executive network. But I have to say, and I don't think our friends in sustainability there would disagree with this. They have done a really lousy job. Their website is down. You can't go in and plug in your address and say. Will I be affected? I mean, you know, there, we, my family, we've got uh, a lot of frozen foods. And, you know, as I'm sure a lot of people do, we often buy in bulk and chop it up and take it out for dinner. You know, not that uncommon. But, 
you know, it's a, it's probably a hundred or two hundred dollars worth of meat that would, or fish and chicken primarily actually that would go to waste. And you know, that's pretty bad. I mean, maybe we can cook some of it and do other things to mitigate that. But you know, you multiply that out times household after household, business after business. If you're a restaurant, if you're a supermarket, um, and you don't have backup power. Um, it's going to be tough. And you, and to find out that information, to be able to plan for these so-called planned outages, is just not possible yet. That's not good. No, not at all. So you don't have enough information. So what do we do? What do you do? Like, or, And maybe what not what you do today, but what do you do tomorrow? Is there anything you're, you're thinking of doing differently now with your... <laughs> With your own electrical uh, future uh, in your house? <laughs> well, it's probably a good time to be in the solar and storage business. I mean, yeah, I'm thinking, and I haven't priced this out, and I don't know whether I can afford it, but I think, uh, you know, I, I'd like to try and see if I can, is to um, uh, get storage, uh, storage uh, unit, battery storage for power, uh, link that to some solar cells. My roof is not great for solar because of some tree overhangs that make it uh, shade uh, a lot of the direct solar. But I think we could do a small one that would pr primarily power the batteries and then run some new circuits that that uh, hook up the battery to the freezer, refrigerator, internet, and a few other critical things in the house. I don't know what the technology is and how expensive it is and what the waiting time is, but it, this is something that I have a feeling others will be looking at. But that's just me. What the state is looking at is something that we are going to be uh, working on and partnering with the state. And I know this is, sounds like you're ambulance chasers. You're chasing this, this unfortunate situation, but this has been long in the making for a uh, grid resilience summit that we're doing at Verge in a couple of weeks in partnership with the California governor's office. And Gavin Newsom, the California governor himself, will be on stage at Verge. We'll be talking. I'll be in conversation with him. I'm sure this will be one of the topics that we will get into. But the question here is how exactly what you're asking, what will it take to uh, for communities in harm's way, particularly those in rural areas that are most impacted by this, but even us city folk, what what's needed to create better grid resilience? Um, you know, the microgrids are one part of that, and as, as you know well, we've every Verge conference, we build one on site to power the event. So there's a lot of tools, but they're not yet as deployable as they need to be. Yeah, I mean, and I think to your point, what are the communities going to do? I think it will take the communities to get involved. Um, this is what we do here in the United States. We don't plan ahead. We wait until we get smacked over the head with some big problem. And then we, oh, yeah, we got to do this now. I mean, it takes, unfortunately, some horrible tragedy often to get people to actually finally do something. And I'd love to see some really meaningful... Um, action out of you guys because I, I'd love to see it here. I, I remember after Sandy in New Jersey, unfortunately, a lot of people did the flip side of what you're talking about. They put in, um, you know, their own sort of gas, natural gas hookups, right, for, for their own natural gas backups. Or, so, di or diesel generators. Well, it was actually more natural here oh, good. In, in, good, in, good. In, in New Jersey. I mean, Good, I guess. Better than diesel, not great, you know, not better than an energy storage solution. But I, I just, I, I, I wish we would 
we as a society, we get better about planning ahead. And by the way, if you want to check out some technology, you can go to our microgrid. <laughs> it gives you some good ideas, I'm sure. Well, yeah, of, and of I think that, that's part, use, right? you can tour that as part of a, a, a Verge uh, Expo Pass. Uh, yes, which, you can. Um, you can get for little or nothing. In fact, if you want to go to the expo for free as a listener of this podcast, um, and you can tour the microgrid, uh, just uh, register for a expo pass, type in the code V19350, that's Verge19350, as in 350, and we'll make sure that you get one of those. All right. Action item for us. <laughs> and action item for us right now is the Week in Review. So the first story I'd love to point out to our listeners is one from um, the Marsha McLennan Insights team, Rob Bailey, Director of Climate Resilience. I guess resilience is on our mind this week, or at least mine. In <laughs> um, its global climate regulation looms on the horizon, are banks and insurers ready? And so we've been writing about this from the investor standpoint. So we, we've, you know, as as our Listeners and readers know many of the institutional investors are starting to require this sort of new reporting. We're reporting on climate risks, climate opportunities too, by the way. Um, and now the regulators are getting more serious about things. And, and, and this particular piece references some things, that, the comments that were made by the Bank of England this week and also this supervisory statement they have out called SS3-19. So... And it's basically setting up the, the expectation for how banks and insurers are going to need to talk about um, their frameworks and, and what, what's going on in the future. And now the, 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 the big thing is that companies that, that will be lending or getting money from those banks, rather, um, need to get on with the, with the act as well. So security regulators are pretty slow. Europe that we know is, is quicker to act. Um, and there's some really good examples of that in outside of the United States. But this one makes me think, okay, it's another, it's like the ball is being pushed a little bit further down the field um, as far as what expectations uh, the financial and securities um, types out there are going to have when it comes to companies talking about their risks. Um, and of course, there's certain sectors that, that are most vulnerable, but I'm going to let you kick in with some some high-level comment first before I yammer on yeah. too long. <laughs> well, never <laughs> yammering. But um, yeah, this is actually the, the convergence of two different trends. One is just the, the growth of climate risk. And we've been talking about climate risk forever, but it's now mainstream it's top of mind and ESG you know there's the environmental social governance on the investment side is is really leaning into this and uh, Deutsche Bank said that you know half of all securities will have some ESG uh, component or uh, analysis in the next few years and this is just happening and we're, we're, we've been writing about this we're doing our second annual Greenfin Summit at, at, at the GreenBiz conference in February in Phoenix. But the other is is how the banking industry is leaning into this. And uh, during Climate Week a couple of weeks ago, uh, banks that uh, collectively with more than $47 trillion in assets, uh, about a third of the global industry signed up onto something that the United Nations created called the uh, 
principles for responsible banking and you know the committing to uh, a number of, of of specific measures in how they uh, view their investments uh, how they uh, look at risk and and uh, you know aligning their investment strategies not just with the Paris uh, climate goals of 1.5 percent centigrade increase in global temperatures, but also the sustainable development goals. So this is a really interesting um, model and and development that's just going to be happening wave after wave after wave of things at the the global level, at the macro level, but also ultimately at the individual level. I'll talk about this in a few minutes with the interview I did with um, Val Smith, the newly minted uh, chief sustainability officer at, at Citibank. And that's one of the things that Citi at the CEO level has been really leaning into, these principles for responsible banking. You know, it's interesting because we, we saw, of course, we you know that the energy companies are going to be the ones that get, you know, one of the first really high-level scrutinies, right, and, and in deeper scrutinies on this issue. You know, and there was another report out this week on the oil companies and, and you know, how culpable they are and so forth, and they have lists. And so there's a lot of research being done, of course, and being published that is making people want to look for this information and get deeper. But it's also these other sectors. Like, I was fascinated because this story talks about pharmaceutical supply chains, right, medicines, and how vulnerable the sort of offshore manufacturing hubs are that they rely on for, for taxation. Now they're getting, you know, Puerto Rico, for example, um, Puerto Rico, which manufactured 8% of all the medicine, medicines consumed in the United States, right? So boom, 8%. That there, there's going to be higher level scrutiny on, on lots of industries that we might not really be talking about that much now, but what are going to be talked about a lot more. Um, and and that, it, that just being one big example, yeah. And if you're a bank that's lending to them or an insurance company that's that's backing them, uh, then this you want to know what their measures they're taking to mitigate the risk, to be able to recover quickly, get back in action. And that's why the banks uh, and the insurers are stepping into this uh, in a very big way. And I think, uh, you know, the question is, will they be doing it and forcing their their clients to, to do enough things so to ward off uh, not the worst impacts of global climate change, but the worst impacts of financial risk that will result from global climate change? Um, that's a question to be determined. But moving down the road a little bit, let's talk about oh, vehicle to good one. Oh, you see what I did there? A little bit. I of a, did. Yeah. Nice. And speaking of segues, no, that's an old joke. Um, and we have this piece from uh, NLX, a uh, big uh, Italian-based uh, ut- energy company and someone from advanced energy economy. The, the point is, is about um, looking at this notion of vehicles to grid, which is basically what happens when you have electric vehicles that uh, become smarter and tied to the grid, both for charging purposes, but uh, and but also to both buy and sell energy. How do they do that? And what does the grid need to do? Um, and um, we're starting to get, just starting to get to the critical mass, at least in California and some places in Europe and, and elsewhere, where there's enough of these uh, on the road that it starts to have a potential impact, again, either positive or negative, as both buyers and sellers of energy 
And so uh, California has got uh, was had a law that was signed into effect uh, you know, last week by Governor Newsom, and that's um, helping make the electric vehicle system charging systems uh, uh, more responsive, more adaptable, more flexible to the growth of electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of this has been happening sort of in parallel, right? So there's a lot of work in California on zero emissions and, and, and so forth on the transportation side and, of course, all of the renewable energy work. And, and so in parallel, they've been working on policies and business models and incentive models and so forth. And now we really need to see the, if you will, convergence of these um, interests because they they really do co- coexist and will and and as you see more trucks getting on the road that are not necessarily in their own neighborhood um it just it, electric trucks rather it, it would be but it just it, it's it's sort of now is a time i think for um there to be just a lot more closer communication by the way the, the third person on this article is from honda um and and so he's these three sort of companies coming together and l does a lot of work on electric charging um, and they have, they're really thinking about this a lot. You've seen some of the utilities, um, National Grid has a big um, a plan in the Northeast United States of how it's going to be deploying uh, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. For the utilities, it's an opportunity because they can provide new services around this or, you know, hook them into their existing customers. And so I just, I, I feel like... Um, this is it's a it's another great milestone, another great uh, mile marker, if you will, on uh, on the road to convergence of these great uh, these great technologies that California has managed to pioneer so well. Yeah, and we've been talking for a long time about this world where the electric vehicle fleet sort of serves as a rolling battery storage uh, component for the grid where you've got cars that have more stored energy than they need to get the driver, let's say, home from work um, that could be used to help balance the load of the uh, of the grid when they're during peak periods of time, uh, for example, late afternoon in the summer when air conditioners are cranked up. And so I've been talking about this for a long time. A lot of this thinking was pioneered at the Rocky Mountain Institute, Amory Lovins, who will be at Verge uh, in a couple of weeks. And um, and now we're getting to the point there's 625,000 electric vehicles on the roads in California. It sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, relative, but not relative to the fact that there's 14.5 million cars uh, registered within the state of California. So it's only 4% or so, but it's grown quickly. And I think that's the key, that as it grows, we need to be looking at this stuff uh, much more proactively instead of just waiting. Um, in fact, someone uh, they write in this article, if we wait to implement these vehicle-to-grid solutions, um, the cost of implementation will likely be much higher. The effect would be similar to retrofitting a more fit- efficient engine into a car five years into its life rather than equipping it as such from the factory. So that's what we're up against, and that's what we need to do. And I couldn't help but pick... One of your great essays, Joel, for the third story we're going to chat about this week. And this one was just a particularly um, insightful piece because I, I, I often get frustrated about the sort of when people say clean tech, then they start talking about renewable energy. Um, and or they when they talk about clean economy, they talk about renewable energy. And this concept of circularity is so, so important um, in getting to where we need to go. And so you wrote this piece um, called Circularity and the 45% Climate Solution. So what that 
fun headline refers to is the fact that, as you outlined so well, is that um, we need to totally redesign and rethink how we manage land, other resources, and so forth in order to get um, sort of that other 45% of greenhouse gas reductions. So we're going to get a lot of that, the 55% or so from buildings and transport and renewables and so forth. But that's as far as we're going to get. So there's some research out by uh, Ellen, our, our friends at Ellen MacArthur Foundation in part, partnership with Material Economics that really point this out. And uh, this is one of those things that kind of maybe sort of got you know, buried in the climate week <laughs> barrage of information, but it's really profoundly um, important thing to think about because this is this is where we need to go. It's also profoundly difficult, right, <laughs> for us to pull off because it pretty much it 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 means changing everything. It means changing, um, well, everything. Yeah. Uh, and you know, this is not a new idea. Uh, McKinsey uh, did a report eight years ago that estimated you know, th nearly $3 trillion in savings from capturing the uh, full potential of resource productivity, um, and even more if, if there's actually a price of carbon at around $30 a ton. So this whole idea of, of resource efficiency and, and managing uh, everything uh, more efficiently can uh, have a, a big financial impact, but it hasn't been linked to carbon emissions as directly as this report from, again, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and, and Material Economics, which is a Stockholm-based management consulting firm that focuses on sustainability strategy and technology and policy. And, and so there's a lot of potential here. This is the point of the report that we're not looking at from a climate solutions perspective. We look at circular economy from material throughput to the, solve the global War on plastics, waste, and and uh, and also just look more efficiently at how we use resources. As as uh, some three billion people start knocking on the door of the global middle class, but one of the big areas that they touch on, and this continues to get short shrift, I think, in the conversations, is ag, uh, agriculture, and how switching to regenerative agricultural techniques. Um, not only can uh, improve the health of soil, increase its capacity to absorb and retain water, but it, but in the process, be uh, make it more climate resilient, so it can uh, absorb more water and and ward off the droughts, um, and uh, and also uh, through a number of you know, reduce inputs, which all have climate emissions. So I guess what we're understanding now is not just electric vehicles and renewable energy. That's the big part of the climate solution. That'll get us about halfway there. But the other 45% needs to come from this materials revolution, this circular economy revolution, which is about keeping molecules in continuous motion, not just through recycling, but through uh, reuse and sharing and making products last longer and a number of other things. That's a really interesting take. And it brings two of our worlds together, this climate and risk, along with the circular economy. And uh, we're seeing that uh, happen a lot more. And just sort of along those lines, BlackRock this week made a big announcement about investing in circular economy, setting up a dedicated fund for that. Not a very big one considering its size, but still uh, one of the first funds and from this in this case from the world's largest investment firm. Uh, it's, it's again, it's this world's collide, a green fin, green finance that we've been leaning into and circular economy, uh, climate and risk and energy uh, and leaning into the circular economy. 
you know, it's almost as if everything is connected. <gasps> you know, first I want to give props to ING for, for being another one of the banks. It's, it's the financial services organizations that's funding circularity. But, you know, here's a question for you, Joel, because you referenced the fact that, you know, <laughs> that people have been saying this for years. Um, why do you think maybe people are more willing to listen now? Or do you think they are? Well, it's a combination of things. It's first of all, it's the increased concern about climate. It's the increased concern about material waste, particularly plastics. It's also the fact that the technologies are improving. Again, we write a lot about this, uh, the technologies for the alternatives to plastics, the, uh, the, the new carbon tech, which uh, we've been covering uh, around uh, taking greenhouse gases and, and putting them into productive uses uh, in concrete and other materials, wood, wood the products to replace uh, wood or, or aluminum or steel in buildings. There's a lot of potential here. And so those technologies didn't exist. And it's like, okay, well, how do we close the loop if we don't have any use for these waste products? And, and this includes carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases. Now that we do, we've got some solutions and there's a lot more to come. And uh, we're starting to be able to say, okay, now that we can do A, B, and C, we can actually take on these things that we've been dreaming or talking about or you know, trying to do but not cost-effectively for years. So I think we're at a moment here, and you combine that with just the growing concern about the climate uh, crisis and uh, the urgency that's being felt in most places, except Washington, D.C., around that. And I think, is it, again, this is just a moment. And it's, thank God, the moment we've been waiting for. Holly Seacon here, reporter at GreenBiz, talking with Shauna Rappaport, Vice President and Executive Director of Verge at GreenBiz Group. Shauna, last week you sat down to talk with Tom Chi, former engineer at Google X, who's now focusing on climate solutions. In a few minutes, we'll hear your interview with him. But before that, can you tell us a little bit more about who Tom is? Yes, I have known about Tom and his work for many years. He was on the founding team at Google X and has been in his very omni-comprehensive career, ranging from, um, from Google to other Fortune 500 companies to astrophysics and everything in between, has um, really brought this perspective about rapid prototyping, not just the perspective, but practices uh, to creating change and innovation with all different kinds of organizations. I know him most recently from um, our work together on the board of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. Um, and thank goodness he is now bringing all of his capabilities Abilities to planetary regeneration. He talks a lot about how do we leverage technology to help humanity become a net positive to nature. Um, and that's, uh, that's one of the things I'm most excited about what he's up to these days. So why were you interested in talking to Tom? Well, we have confirmed Tom as one of our opening keynotes for Verge 19. We'll be kicking off with a conversation with Governor Newsom about the state of climate leadership in California. And I'm super excited to then have Tom coming on stage to kind of take us from the California perspective, zooming 
all the way out to the planetary perspective. And, you know, we talk a lot about Verge and certainly in the green biz world about sustainability. And I think one of the really important and essential things that Tom brings to almost every conversation is about what's what's really beyond sustainability and what does it mean to be a regenerative uh, institution, a regenerative company, a regenerative industry, a regenerative um, species. Um, and so so I'm super excited about him bringing, bringing that to the Verge stage. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, with that, we'll go to Tom's interview. I want to start at sort of a base level. Yeah, ecological regeneration on massive scales really seems to be a, a primary focus of your work these days. Talk a little bit about why that is. So I started with the kind of question of how do we really address the large scale issues with climate? And having a background in physics and electrical engineering, my first hope was that, well, you just got to go and make some kind of machine. Let's go make a machine that sucks the carbon out of the air. Let's go make the machine that will go, you know, clean the water, that kind of thing. But as I looked into it more, it turned out that the best machines that I could find were basically trees and soils and, you know, the processes that happen in oceans and wetlands. And that's, why kind of the turn of focus to go do that also the if you look at how the carbon is being successfully sequestered from the atmosphere then you know we've put uh, more than two trillion tons of emissions uh, carbon dioxide emissions up since the industrial revolution and nature has already absorbed like 1.2 trillion of those tons leaving one trillion left up in the atmosphere. But if nature is already working at the effect size that that we need, then you get a lot more mileage out of helping nature do more of that than you do in trying to invent a new machine to be able to try to aim for a million or a billion tons. So let's go into that a little bit further because you talk often about the idea of humanity leveraging technology to become what you call a net positive to nature. In fact, you're going to be speaking about that on the main stage at Verge 19 in just a couple of, of weeks. What are some examples of that principle in practice? Yeah. So at the end of the day, you know, the economy is just is a subset of the biosphere. Because everything that you see around you and everything in the economy basically was either grown or mined. And so just look around you in the room. Everything around you was either grown or mined. And that's basically nature. So we just got the priority wrong where we kind of tried to pretend that you could prop up the economy at the expense of nature. But if you start to understand the economy as a subset of, you know, the, the, uh, the ecological world, then you start to understand, well, you need to go invest in the thing that allows you to go and participate in the subset. And what that looks like is that you want to go create um, a way of being so that every single year that humanity is on the planet, nature is healthier because we're here. And along four simple attributes, air, water, soil, and biodiversity. If every year that humanity is around, uh, nature gets healthier on those four attributes, then we will have a lot of prosperity that we can participate in. 
On the flip side, if we do the opposite, if let's say we're net negative to nature, even just a little bit, let's say we are 0.1% net negative to nature on a yearly basis, you've created a condition where there's a death date for civilization. You know, 0.1% negative, you got a thousand years before your civilization crashes. And it wouldn't be the first time that, you know, a major civilization or society crashed because they, they pushed beyond the ecological limits and didn't give back or, or regenerate in the process of their being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're in the process right now, actually, of growing a fund to support these kinds of projects, technology solutions, very systemic um, solutions that are looking at how do we leverage technology in beneficial ways that allow humans to actually regenerate um, e- ecosystems and, and, and natural systems. You have, I think, about 20 companies in your portfolio. You've moved millions already. Talk about, talk a little bit about who and what you're investing in and what your, what your big picture vision is for the, for the fund. Yeah, so I have placed investments in this already, and the investments have been doing you know, quite well. So that was part of the thought process of, well, we should do a lot more of this, not, not only because, hey, you know, let's go open up a vehicle so other investors can go you know participate in upside but also because this is the work that needs to happen and i think the reason that things have been going well is that there aren't enough people spending time in this space um you know so the just the opportunity there is actually really significant now some of the investments in particular, like one of the companies I'm an investor in is this company called Iron Ox. And they are doing robotic agriculture from seed to harvest. So it isn't a vertical farm. Um, they are very much you know, focused on a type of um, agricultural automation that will be competitive with uh, outdoor agriculture and make it so that we're able to grow our food in a healthy, super reliable, uh, and extremely cost-effective way, but using much less area. And it could be understood to be a type of greenhouse automation. Now, what that could amount to is uh, Ironox is able to produce the equivalent of 30 acres of food using one air, one acre of growth space. So a 30 to, to one compression of the area that's required to grow uh, this healthy food. And I calculated that g- using this approach, you could continuously feed a city of 100,000 people all of their caloric needs uh, using just two and a half square miles. Now, separate thread, which is uh, the reason to go invest in this is the main driver of ecosystem destruction is food production. We're using 40% of the land surface of the earth to feed ourselves. And the Amazon's being cut down, not primarily because of logging companies. We actually burn down the Amazon to go grow soybeans and, and graze cattle. So you look at this, if you could go and change the economics around agriculture, make it way cheaper, way more effective, do it in much less area, that it basically takes the floor out from under, you know, the economics of destroying the rainforest too. We're really destroying any ecosystem. 
in order to grow food. So I, I invest in things where it is both directly doing ecological restoration, and I also invest in things that that allow us to basically um, pull the floor out from under the industries that are the main drivers of ecological destruction. Yeah, both both in concert. Well, Tom, thank you so much um, for for taking the time for your vision, for your leadership. I can't wait to hear more about um, your sort of big picture perspective and also what you're doing on the ground every day when we have you at Verge with us in just a couple of weeks. Um, Tom Chi, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks. Last month, the global financial services company, Citi, elevated its head of sustainability, Valerie Smith, a 15-year company veteran, to be chief sustainability officer, the first major U.S. bank to have a sustainability exec in the C-suite. What exactly does that mean? Joining me now to explain is Valerie Smith herself. Hi, Val. Hi, Joel. First and foremost, congratulations. But what does this mean? Up to now, you've been the global head of corporate sustainability. Now you're the chief sustainability officer. What's going on? Thanks, Joel. Um, You're right that in one sense, this role is is the same. And in another sense, it feels completely different. Um, I think that it's it's best described as the new role of chief sustainability officer at city being a reflection of the importance of this work in shaping our business activities, our internal operations, our stakeholder engagement, and how sustainability has risen to the level of C-suite leadership at city, but not just at city uh, for many of our clients, for our investors. um, I think we are increasingly seeing sustainability and broader ESG issues as being very central to um, to our approach to business and engagement across the board. And so this creation of the role really, I think, is, is an example of that, of the increasing prominence of this area. So what will happen now that might not have otherwise happened? Where does this enable City to take its sustainability commitment? Well, this promotion, uh, this creation of the new role comes at a really pivotal time. Um, I mentioned that increasingly we are seeing um, engagement from our clients, from our investors on sustainability. It has become um, not just a grassroots effort. You mentioned that I had been um, at City in the sustainability function for 15 years, and a lot of that effort was finding internal partners, influencing, really driving change at the top level, but also, you know, very much at the grassroots level. And now this is increasingly becoming a top-down effort. And it comes at a time when we are getting ready to um, update our sustainability strategy. I think we spoke with you um, five years ago when we had announced our sustainable progress strategy in 2015 Um, And our $100 billion environmental finance goal, we're now going through the process of of updating that, of um, looking at setting a new sustainable finance goal. And it really, I think, um, ratcheting up our commitments across the board and having 
this role, I think, is really important for signaling externally as well as internally just the importance of this function um, at City and the, the importance of this function to our business and our strategy. So in a way, it just helps to reduce some of the friction, I think, to really drive forward um, and, and hopefully help to lead the sector in the sustainability space. Talk a little bit more about friction. What kind? What, what do you mean? Well, it just offer, offers sort of a clarity, I think, a clarity of intent, um, a clarity of intent from our CEO, from um, Ed Schuyler, our executive vice president, and my new report, um, a clarity of intent in terms of what we would like to, how we would, what we would like to help have see happen in the sector, how we would like to engage with our clients differently. Um, and I mean, as you, as you know, having reported on the sustainability space for decades now, um, and on the corporate sustainability space in particular, um, there's a lot of friction in, um, in helping to move companies forward and helping to engage with our clients, um, in, in different sustainability related conversations and, um, having the, the clarity of uh, the, the importance of this kind of function at City, I think, just helps to make, um, to sort of smooth the pathway for really doing some exciting things. Another thing that happened last month is that 130 banks with $47 trillion in assets, representing about a third of the global industry, signed on to the United Nations Principles for Responsible Banking. And City was one of the first to do that, actually, last July. Why is City leaning into sustainability? Is this a business opportunity, a risk reduction effort? What's the big driver here? One of the things that we really liked about the principles for responsible banking is that it kind of knits all of that together. And a set of principles that we saw is pretty comprehensive and really, um, you know, pulling together the risk and the opportunity side. Um, I think this is something that the sector in general, has been talking about for a while, but we're starting to really see it, it manifest itself in a real way. So, you know, for example, the principles for responsible banking talk about, um, you know, developing your business strategy in alignment with the sustainable development goals, in alignment with the Paris Agreement. And as we're thinking about our role in finance and our role as enablers of our clients' ambitions, we increasingly, I think, think about um, finance as this continuum where, um, you know, we're engaging with clients from an environmental and social risk management side, from a climate risk assessment side and our TCFD disclosure work. We're engaging with our clients on the sustainable finance side through all of the work that we're do- we've done under our $100 billion environmental finance goal. But there's this sort of gulf in the middle and I think increasingly we see that gulf being filled by transition finance, where we are engaging with our clients to help them think about, A, how, are they, how do they see their business transitioning to achieve the sustainable development goals to align with the Paris Agreement objectives, and how can you use finance as a tool So the principles for responsible banking, as you noted, were adopted by a pretty broad swath of the sector, and Citi really has leaned into that just because we saw it as a way to 
pull all of these different activities together with an external framing to help us really align and communicate our intentions and communicate, you know, our objectives for working with our clients on this. So looking ahead, what are you most excited about in this new role? Our sector, the finance sector, has such an opportunity to really help to drive change on some of the most important issues of today, Um, not just climate change, but many of the other important issues that are represented um, by the sustainable development goals. And um, I think Citi, as the world's most global bank, has a pretty unique role to play within the sector. From the very, you know, earliest days of our sustainability program, um, we actually had a sustainability function within City from around 1997 on. Um, but there were some key moments that where we were able to work with our competitors to develop principles and strategies that I think helped to move the whole sector. And I'm thinking about our role in co-creating the equator principles for project finance in 2003, um, some of the work that we've done related to environmental finance targeting and and the accounting and disclosure related to that, Um, our co-development of the green bond principles, more recently our co-development of the Poseidon principles, and some of the work that we've been doing on um, TCFD and climate risk assessment, I think that that work is really helping, along with many others, many of our peers, but helping to develop the way that the sector approaches environmental and social and climate change as a risk and an opportunity. And if I get, if I think about what gets me most excited, it's sort of our impact for change. Um, But that change has to happen with us as facilitators of our clients and their activities. And if you think about some of the pretty massive goals that we have ahead of us, I mean, coming off of Climate Week and UNGA Week a couple of weeks ago, um, where there was a lot of talk about net zero by 2050, and you think about the type of transition that's required for that in our economy, um, it requires sort of unprecedented change. And um, we're pretty excited about our role to help facilitate that change. And it's going to take a lot of money. So they'll be turning to you. Valerie Smith is the newly minted Chief Sustainability Officer at the global financial services company, City. Thanks so much for talking to us, Val. Thanks very much for having me, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. And while you're there, check out our free newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday, five in all. You go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And our email is still 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.